Welcome to season two, episode one of the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission here, as you guys know, is to help a million people start a business of their own. We're well on our way. In 2020, we helped 74 people start a business. And we want to make sure that anyone out there that is starting a business never feels alone doing it. I know as an entrepreneur myself, sometimes when I've been building businesses, it can be a lonely experience. There's people out there with knowledge that can help you. And my guest today, William Reeve, is the CEO of Good Lord. He's going to share his incredible story with us, his insights and knowledge. So stick around. Guys, if you like our podcast, don't forget, you can listen to it on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and you can even get it in your inbox. All you have to do is sign up to our mailing list via goodluckpod.com, and we will make sure every single week you never miss an episode. So let me bring our first guest of the first new season on. William, welcome. Hi, Simon. Thank you. So great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for bringing me on. Well, you're at the library. We uh, we think libraries are um, not the past, but the future. It's where knowledge lives. And today, your knowledge lives with us here. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, Simon. So the first question I have for you, it's always good for our guests to understand a little bit about you and what, you, what your history is. Could you share a little bit of your story? Yeah, so I've been involved with technology businesses uh, over 20 years now. I set up my first business in the 90s in London. Uh, and... Uh, that was a business researching the internet. Um, so it was a little bit like selling picks and shovels in a gold rush. Mm. But uh, you always get tempted to dig for gold. And uh, my second business uh, was was trying to be an internet company of its own, which became Love Film, uh, the uh, movie rental business, and um, which ultimately got bought to turn Amazon's uh, service into Amazon Prime Video. And I've been involved with a whole bunch of other businesses as a investor or founder or... Um, coming in as a, a, an angel or a non-exec director, all sorts of things. I'm currently running a, a software platform for the lessings industry called Good Lord. What I love about uh, talking to entrepreneurs is how humble they can often be when they've had tremendous success. So, you know, a couple of things for our listeners. You, you sold um, Love Films for $100 million to Amazon. You know, it sounds like the dream for a lot of people. You know, it, in addition, I think just looking at your CV, it's mind-blowing what you've managed to do and achieve. It's uh, quite a career. And so today, the business you're working on, tell us a little bit about what it actually does. So uh, the business I'm working on now, Good Lord, is a software platform for the lettings industry. And we work through letting agents in the main. Uh, and they bring us the landlords and tenants who they're working with. So we can help all these guys um, make the process a bit easier and bring we're trying to make the renting process uh, the best it can be uh, using the sort of digital technologies that people like uber would use to make kind of booking a taxi as good as it can be and we help the the, the kind of boring bit the back end of the process we're not we're not the ones trying to find the tenants for the landlords but once the once the agent's done that then there's just a whole load of admin and finance payments uh, id checking compliance that has to happen and we try and stream like that so it can just be done with one click mm. You mentioned a point earlier, I want the audience to make sure they pick up on, which is this story about how if you're going to dig for gold, you shouldn't actually dig for gold, you should sell people the shovels to dig for gold. Yeah. Sounds like um, this business is one of those examples, again, that's, that's a philosophy really, isn't it? Most people, for example, will go straight to buying Bitcoin instead of perhaps thinking about the businesses that could serve the Bitcoin right. community, right? So how did you come about this business? Well, I think so. One of the common threads behind a lot of the businesses that I've got involved with is they have some form of repeat business associated with them. So subscription businesses, for example. So my first business, we sold research to big corporates and they would pay annually up front and give us an ongoing annual contract. Uh, and I, I really like subscription renewable businesses. So then Love Film, of course, was a monthly 
subscription, a bit like the Netflix uh, subscription these days. Um, and then I've been involved with Grays, the snack food through the post business, where again, you're paying on a subscription basis. Uh, and even Zoopla, actually, which I was involved with for a bit, Zoopla is, a, is asking agents to pay a monthly sub to be to get their properties listed on the website. And Good Lord has a lot of that as well. We're asking the agents to commit to us on an annual contract. Uh, and it's a bit like almost phone companies selling phone lines. They pay almost for the line, but then they also pay for using the platform the way you pay your phone company for calls you make on the phone. Mm. And um, and then we uh, we have the kind of predictability from the agent contracts, which will hopefully last for us for years and years and years. And uh, it gives the business a sort of a high quality to, to it because you're not having to fight for every little bit of revenue. You've got a lot of the existing revenue in the bag. Mm. Now, I know you also not only start your own businesses you invest in them too it almost feels like a, an old concept to, to, to talk about revenue up front you know reoccurring revenue these days i'm sure you've seen the same most of the pictures i get is like this is the brilliant idea when you ask about revenue it seems to be the last thing on people's minds and i'm always thinking about my listeners that are building businesses out there that you know do hear these businesses that don't have any revenue stream and just raise lots of money what, what's your view on that that side that's of things? a really good question simon and i'm afraid i'm I'm the old man of the hills on this regard because I, I was involved with the internet in the UK as its very first incarnation in the 90s. And back then, literally, people would say, like, revenues is an old-fashioned concept. <laughs> we should be measuring the more important things like eyeballs and, you know, the valuations that they try and sell the company for would be based on the number of eyeballs they had and this many dollars per eyeball and stuff, literally. And um, I think, actually, the internet and technology businesses have grown up a lot in that respect. So, for example... One of the wunderkinds these days is Zoom, isn't it? Which, of course, in the with the lockdown and so on, Zoom's done really well. But Zoom is offering uh, video conferencing really easily and video phone calls really easily, but you pay for it. And, and it's got a freemium model, of course, so it's free for something, but you have to pay for more. Um, but, you know, 20 years ago, the wunderkind was Skype. And... Mm. It was basically just free, and the, the the disruption was free, and sort of having to charge was a bit of an afterthought. Mm. And I think that's quite typical, actually. That I think these days, that most of the sort of wunderkind, sort of sexy kids on the block, do at least care about revenues. They they don't yet care about profits. That's probably for the next twenty years. But they do they do care about their sales figures. Mm. Yeah, it, it's definitely, it's interesting, you know, the concept of uh, making money in a business is uh, so 1990s. Well, <laughs> it, it really is important. 1980s. I, well, I, well, even, even, in the 90s. Well, I think even in the 90s, I mean, I, I could see when, when the, when the dot-com bust was coming, there, there was finally in 2001 talk about how revenue should be part of business models. But now back in, the, I would say in the last 10 years, it's back to like, it's just about growing and becoming as big as, Facebook or as big as YouTube and, and, and not realizing. I, I saw the pitch deck for YouTube. They actually had a revenue model in there. Oh, yeah. it, you know, So a lot of people think they never had a revenue model. The fact that Google then bought them and Google was able to monetize it differently. I mean, originally YouTube's monetization was people would subscribe to that channel and pay to subscribe to that channel. Uh, of course, that's not the case anymore. People can subscribe for free, but that actually gave it a basis for a lot of astute investors to invest in them. So having no revenue model at all is, is not a good idea. No. I know you have a lot of experience in, in investing. We, we can get into that a, a little bit later. But I, I just wanted to get back to the personal story a little bit. Like For you, what is success? How do you define success for you personally? Um, I, don't, um, I don't know. I have a, an off-the-shelf definition. I think I've always, I've, always, um, I've always wanted to get involved with stuff where you can win. And I've always benchmarked myself against the best the best thing in the market, I think. And I did that even even as a kid. I was a teenage computer geek as a kid. And uh, I was in my school, luckily, I had a really sort of quite an active little club of us geeks and we were all into it. And we got a bit of help from um, 
a couple of the alums who'd set up, who in their 20s but had set up sort of technology companies up in Cambridge where there's quite a lot of that going on. And so, um, but we would, um, you know, th- we would be discussing projects which we were comparing ourselves to the professional stuff and going, well, that, we, we, we could do better than that. And, um, and I think I've always done that. And I think uh, then at university, I kind of got involved with a few publishing projects. And again, the benchmark was the best stuff you can see in the market and we can do better than that. And, um, and then I think all the business stuff I've done since, the question I'm asking myself is how do you win? Um, and one of the things that st- took me a while actually in the love film situation, for example, was I could see Netflix and I sort of th- the model was kind of working reasonably well in the US. But there were several people already doing it in the UK before me. And I was I'm not interested in being a number five. I, I, I only want to do it if I can be a number one. How am I going to do that? And it took me a while to find the right answer to that question. Um, so I think, um, and, and you can be successful in quite a niche thing and it's still very, you know, still going to feel it's a very fulfilling rewarding thing to do you don't have to be a global business to be successful if you if you're very very good at your job even if your job is keeping the you know the the local community like giving them the best coffee that they can get that's a way of being successful too Mm. it's an interesting philosophy again i hope my audience pick up on it it's um you never mentioned a financial reward but being market leader is is important and 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 winning having the best products i think the best product yeah yeah, which i think is a really good thing for people to pick up on actually because because a lot of the time people have a measurement of of finances for example but being the best in the market can can really bring its reward being the best or being the market leader both of those are important and of course in some situations in technology businesses there's a there's a scale question so you can't really run a a big a successful technology business if it's small because it needs to have there are, there are, though people think you can set up a website for almost nothing there's some truth to that but you can't run a good one for almost nothing it has to ha- you have to actually have investment and partly why the americans have done so well in this is because they've got the biggest home market so if you end up with one percent of the market in america and one percent of the market in the uk and you're running like websites you're selling books or something mm-hmm. uh when you've got one percent of the market in america you've got a five times bigger business than you have in the UK. And so you can employ five times as many techies and your website's probably got five times as many features on it. Mm. And then when you come to the UK and you've got this five times better website against the local one, which one, who the customer is going to use? Mm. They're going to use the one and it's five times better. So there is a scale dynamic which has helped the Americans and which applies certainly in technology businesses. And then if you've got the scale, you can often have the cheapest prices and you can often have, you've often got the easiest marketing because everybody's heard of you. And so suddenly you're, you know, the business is better. And that's that can be a challenge, of course. Uh, so maybe maybe if you're trying to sell coffee, aiming to be the best in the local neighbourhood isn't quite enough, right, if there's a scale mm. challenge to, to play. But plenty of businesses, the scale needed to win is not that high. Were you always an entrepreneur? You mentioned your school days there. Do, 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 were your parents think myself as an entrepreneur until into my 20s, but I, I think I did get voted in the school yearbook, the I'm most likely to become a millionaire by the age of whatever it was, um, but I, um, I think they just thought I was going to bet on the horses or something. I don't remember what the, uh, why they, why they pigeonholed me for that. But um, so you was a gambler? Do you think is that? What you, you no, I think it was partly because of the computer stuff I was doing. I got, I, I published some stuff professionally actually as a, as a, um, when I was a kid. So um, I made some money out of that, and I think, I think the rest of my class thought, well, he's got a head start on us there, hasn't he? So he's probably the most, most likely to be the, the millionaire of the class but um, I don't think that was quite the same I didn't think of that as being an entrepreneur I thought of that as um, being good at computers mm. Interesting how the classification of entrepreneurship kind of gives a certain image in your mind and the reality of what is an entrepreneur right? I mean the Google founders technical people they're entrepreneurs Yeah, perhaps not yeah, seen yeah. as entrepreneurs That's a good, really good point Simon and I was talking the other day to one of my good friends who's, who was one of my close kind of friends as a computer geek back in 
the 80s. And he's gone on to set up a very successful software business. And we were talking about when does it occur to you? Like, that you knew what you wanted to do, you wanted to be a software engineer. And he said, oh, well, it was back when we were messing around with those computers back in uh, 88 or whatever it was. Mm. And I was like, really? I mean, you thought you were going to set up a software company? And he's like, well, yeah, it was sort of obvious what we were doing. And I, uh, that penny hadn't dropped for me for another mm. 10 years. I, I think the penny doesn't drop for a lot of people listening out uh, there in university, coming out the other end with a philosophy degree, for example. They, they, they think they're going to go get a job. Um, but they can actually, of course, use that to start a business. I think it's uh, another interesting point there. Um, having exposure at a young age to people that were entrepreneurial. Right. Kim, Kim Spencer Jones, you said, right? Kim Spencer Jones. Kim Spencer Jones. I mean, pe- people like him, I think, are actually crucial in your development. Right? You need you need exposure to that way of thinking to open up that pathway in your own brain, right? So, yeah. um, I, I, I kind of I know this question must get annoying if you've you know you've had a big exit. So I know it must be annoying, but I, my audience I know will want to know what was it like to kind of get a hundred million dollar check from from Amazon? Was it was it as simple as it sounds? Well, <laughs> or was it a big process? Um, so to be clear, actually, the number was a bit bigger than that, but it definitely didn't all land in my pocket because um, we'd had to raise a lot of money to build Love Film, and uh, so actually we had a whole lot of different shareholders and. I think I was the biggest of the management shareholders, but I owned a very small percentage of the company. So I'm afraid my check was you know, not big enough to buy the sort of you know houses you'd find not far from here, uh, and um, still quite a lot of money. Let's be clear, but you know what I mean. I, do, I know what you mean. But again, the headlines is always you know founder of a company sells it for a hundred million. Yeah. I think it's important nuance you're highlighting here because for a lot of people they they misunderstand and you know, they, that, that sale happens. They think that's it, yeah, and um, that's right. it's just the beginning of your journey, well, wasn't especially it? Especially in the world of technology investing where you'll see some headline that says I know Monzo's raised monies and is worth over a billion dollars and there's actually all sorts of um, traps for the unwary when you see those headlines because they haven't nobody's necessarily sold any shares and there's a big difference between a valuation when you raise money and valuation when there's a check Totally. Bank account. Jim Sharks had that. Jim Sharks, this yeah. 1.4 valuation. He'd be Ben, who the founder, be very transparent. Actually, he's got no money from it. Exactly. It's literally money coming into the business to buy our old shareholders and then money used to grow the company. Grow the so company. actually, you know, it doesn't mean he's got that money in his pocket. No, correct. And um, I mean, for me, actually, the transformational moment was when I sold my first business, which um, we hadn't raised any money for. So my business partner and I owned essentially the whole company between us. And I was in my 20s. I didn't have too many commitments. And literally, there was a you know, seven-figure number sitting in my bank account uh, sort of a week after the deal. Mm. And um, and I became a shareholder in the publicly... We sold it to an American company called Forrester Research, which is publicly listed. And I became like... I think I was the second biggest individual shareholder in Forrester Research. And, you know, you can look at the share price on the screen. It's there. Amazing. So that that changed my life. And that was um, that was a brilliant moment. And... Um, and I think one of the it's given me a bit of perspective now on you, one of the challenges that sort of you hope to get to, and which is a good quality problem when it does happen, is you know, if you're doing pretty well and somebody offers you a life changing amount of money, money for your business, do you do you take it or do you go on for more? And of course, um, people thought was it Zuckerberg it was mad when he turned down selling a Facebook billion dollars. Billion yeah, dollars, that's right. right. Course, y- Yahoo offered him. He wasn't mad, but you no. take, you've got to really know yourself to make those sorts of decisions. Well, as someone has also had an exit. I uh, I sold my company Fluid to PwC, and uh, you know, there's yeah, it, it, it was like you say, um, I was quite a significant shareholder in that business, um, and there's a couple of learnings that we can talk about. I think you've had the same, which sometimes having an investor is a good thing and a bad thing. You've got to be aware of that when you're taking on investors. Right. They, they, later, if you have an exit, you have less, uh, but you might not even have that business if you didn't have the exactly. investor. So there's you know, there's, there's give well, and it take. Might not be as big. 
might not be as big. We'd love film. We've got to the stage and totally. scale it got yeah. to without the so investment we took. There's a place for investors, but not in all businesses. A lot of people uh, reach out to us. Look, you know, they just want investment and they don't need it. That you can you can build the business on cash flow and, and hard work, but but that's a harder route, I guess. But uh, but but equally, when I sold the company, I don't know your feelings. There was a slight emptiness for a short while where you're like, well, okay, I've sold that. Now what? You know, and so you know, sometimes just building a business you love, there's a lot of merit in just that, right? No, and they. You'll hear entrepreneurs talk about their business as their baby, and I've never had a baby, so I, to be fair, I'm not sure <laughs> me neither. I, I, I physically can't, but but I do think there's something to that, and you know they're very emotional things, and then you're building, creating something which means a lot to hopefully a lot of people, yeah. and, and just the team at the office is uh, is a big part of kind of um, what's fulfilling about doing it, and certainly it's one of the things I really enjoy at Good Lord is you know with the sort of team and culture we've created there. Mm. Uh, is just a really positive, fun place to work, and uh, I I really enjoy that. And I know a lot of the guys there seem to enjoy it. And um, and there's something which you know, to the extent, thankfully, I, I, it's hard to imagine we'd we'd suddenly sell it and have nothing left to do the next morning. But um, I uh, I think to the extent that um, you know, for for the sake of argument, uh, I'd I'd say goodbye to that business. Uh, I'd be uh, there'd be a big hole in the, in my life. Yeah, that's what that that's the thing about building businesses. That I think a lot of people don't quite grasp when they're building a business. So I, I see it in pitch decks where people are like, we're going to build it up and in three years, Amazon are going to buy it. And, and then and then it doesn't happen. I've seen that pitch deck. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah it's probably your pitch deck. But the, the thing is that the truth is, you, you as a founder of a business, you should never have that attitude. I think you should build a business right. that you love and build it out. And I think that's an you know, important message to, to get across that's to the listeners. Right. Um, I actually do have a three-year-old. Um, I didn't have the baby my wife okay. did. Uh, but it is, it is I, on reverse, the hardest thing I've ever done is bring up a child. I always yeah. thought building a business was hard. So again, a lot of our listeners, that you know, single mums trying to build a business, for example, yeah. I mean, that, that is a hard job bringing up a child. But I, I do think that um, having a strong love for your business is, is very important and it is something that gets overlooked. So how did you fall in love with your present business? Is it, did it happen instantly? Was it you woke up one day with this idea and that was it? Or did you buy into someone else's well, so business? In effect, I bought into somebody else's business. I didn't, uh, it wasn't my business, to, I didn't set it up. Um, I actually got introduced to it by... Um, one of the investors in the business who who I worked with before and was an investor in Love Film and then Zoopla and I'd worked with him on, uh, in that and actually it, because Zoopla was in the property space uh, he, that was a point of connection to the Good Lord business which is in the letting space very similar and when I first met the business I definitely wasn't you, you know you're not going to fall in love with somebody else's business on day one it was it was process much more I suppose like meeting the person you're going to get married to, it takes a while, and you're not going to get married on first date. And I, um, but I like the team that I met straight away, and they they were looking for somebody to help the business grow, um, and um, had a bit more experience than they had in the team. And I made it initially a temporary commitment. You know, yes, we'll go on a couple of dates, type of thing. And um, and then uh, one thing led to another, as these things often do. And um, I found myself really getting to like the business and getting to like some of the opportunities I saw and some of the people I hadn't previously met. And then we, um, we we found ourselves getting to a position where we could uh, raise some more money and succeed in raising money. And of course, that led to a bit of a commitment question: like, how committed are we here? And um, by that point, I was ready to make a commitment. And uh, and actually, the business the business was, um, was happy to make a commitment to me, and I was happy to make a, business, a commitment back to it. So it was a six or nine month process. That process. You're highlighting something that um, I think is very important for listeners to pick up on, which is when when they're trying to get an investor or a co-founder on board or a partner on board, you know, take it slowly. I mean, I literally had someone yesterday like 
give me money. And I said, I need to look at the business. And like, you say yes or no, Simon, I've got other investors. You're like, it's a no then. Even if the business is the next Facebook, you know, like it doesn't really matter because it's really about relationship and, and people um, shouldn't, shouldn't rush these things. That's right. One of the lines I've heard on that is it's lines, not dots. Right. And, it's lines, uh, not dots. And, you know, you, they want to see the line going upwards and to the right. And, you know, so first meeting, first call, whatever is a dot. Mm. And hopefully by the time you've got the next meeting, it's been some progress and you move in the right direction. And then hopefully even the second meeting, it's not going to be the second meeting. Mm. And uh, but by the time you've had five meetings and a few phone calls and they've seen the business progressing and so on, and hopefully it's moving in the right direction, then you've got a line mm. and you can back a line. Mm. You know where the line's going to go in the future. Yeah. I think the other thing that's really important um, is, is this concept that for a lot of people, they're looking for investors. I know a lot of our listeners do. But finding someone who can invest and get involved and contribute is, I think, the holy grail of investment when it comes to getting people that, you know, if you can bring you in, your, you know, your time is so much more valuable than your money, your you're experience. Pardon? You're scaring me now. But it's true, though, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really a big, that, that's when you know you've got an amazing investor, if someone's actually giving time to the business. I mean, I built businesses myself with not necessarily raising money from someone that's just giving money, but from someone that's giving money and then getting involved, bringing their skill set to the table. It could be transformational. It can. I, I think I have a slightly different view, actually, in that I think you do want investors who can add value. But you need to be careful because some investors will want to get involved because they've put money in mm. and they just sort of fall in love with the thing. It's, oh, you're doing coffee. Thing. I love coffee. Or maybe I can, maybe I get to work in the kitchen if I've put money into the business. I, I get you. I agree with fine. you on that and too. That might yeah. not be the right call, right? So you might, you want the guy who is actually best at making coffee, not because the guy, he gave you money to the business. And um, I think that one of the tricky things is finding the balance between, you know, the best investors don't have much time, but they need, they will be able to add value. And it's, it's, finding ways to make sure that they are they have the information they need to be able to help and so my stance has changed on this a little bit over the years as i've got scars on my back but i think i'm looking for i'm always saying to people look i want i want to be copied in on things that you're sharing like with your board or, or so on so don't build anything don't don't like do any reports for me but if you've got management accounts i want to see them uh I don't want a weekly call or a meeting or whatever i, just, I mean i just don't i've made 70 odd investments i haven't got time to have regular calls with them all um but if they all send me their management accounts i'm not going to read them all religiously the moment they get my inbox but i will keep up to date and if i if they if they say in there like what's going well what's going badly i'll know where i can help and if they particularly say here's where we need help trying to hire this person or we could do with an introduction into this company then i can really there's a chance i'll be able to say oh i know somebody there or uh oh it's funny i just met a guy who might be a good fit for you let me introduce you and then you've got an investor who can help, but without frightening them that well, I was really hoping for four hours a week, how's four hours a week sound? You know, the reality is four hours a week. If somebody's got four hours a week for you, might not be your best investor. Plus it's not about time, is it? Often it is about it's that about fifteen minutes bit of knowledge yeah, or exactly. that one that one connection or, or that one insight yep. that is transformational. Absolutely. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean I, I um I think there's probably the nuance to this point is is you've got to know yourself as a as a founder of a company, know what your strengths and weaknesses are. If someone comes along, for example, I'm marketing. So if someone comes yeah. along and wants to put money into my podcast platform, but they're also marketing, two chefs in the kitchen is gonna get very messy. Yeah. But I'm not particularly strong on finances. Right. So when people 
people come along and say, I put money in, but I'd like to take care of the finance side of the business. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about that. So I think your question is really more about like what that person can bring to the table. And, and I, I completely agree with you. I've also had, uh, I've invested in 68 startups. I've personally started 18 companies. So I've seen it too. You're quite right where people put money in and suddenly even worse, they think they're running the business. So, so, yeah. so then it can get really messy and, and, messy, and, yeah. and, and very quickly too. So having those conversations up front, you know, where do you sit within the investment cycle? Are you someone that wants to get involved? Okay, you are. In that case, where do you want to get involved? Because this is what we already have covered. This is probably the gray area. You know, maybe you could do that if you're best in class, right. to your point. Because the other thing is, just because you're available, I mean, I've personally made the mistake in hiring people. I've hired people that are available as right. opposed to people that are best in class right. and gone after them. I, in my early career, you hire someone that was available but actually what or you want to do didn't need to be paid very much well yeah um, well, exactly you know, they're, yeah. they're available maybe you, you know but I've found over time it's better to go actually after the people that are best in class uh, and bring them in and, and pay them properly and, and so on but um, yeah I mean I, I did like your uh, measurement of success that kind of win category but do you personally ever set goals for yourself is there any particular measurement you look at for yourself other than winning that as, a, as a success so measurement? I think having goals is really important and I think in fact I try and do that at work I try and make sure that we've got objectives clearly established for the company for the people and we do that very regularly and actually partly part of my trick there I take this so seriously that actually I pay on that and um, I make sure that uh, we link we link our pay to people's uh, performance against objectives so I'm I'm all over the value of having goals and objectives so why I don't have them for myself I'm afraid I can't really tell you Simon but, uh, <laughs> so funny no, a plumber with bad plumbing isn't it no, it is it is and um, and I really think the people who know what they you know they have a goal that by the time I'm 30 I do whatever or, or that you know I'm really determined to you know, be able to pay for that house on the corner like outright or whatever it is, they tend to hit those goals. So I'm afraid I just haven't quite found that. That's very interesting me. psychology though. Why why do you think um, is it because you're so busy focusing on goals for the business that you need a bit of a break in your personal life? Is there some psychological requirement there? I think part of it is because I had a, quite a lot of success quite early, which gave me a lot of freedom and I've really valued that freedom and I've really felt I don't want to be at somebody else's dependent on somebody else or um, sort of get myself overexposed on something mm. and um, it's probably something about if I really felt I sort of had to pin my colours to a mask I would uh, it might not be a place I wanted to be when I was at university and before I really wanted to be headmaster like that was definitely if you'd asked me my goal for probably seven or eight years of my life I wanted to be headmaster mm. and that never came to pass partly because I kind of realised that actually running your own business is quite a lot like being headmaster but probably without some of the bad bits and with a lot of better bits so um i was um i did have a goal and i found a way of doing better than it and probably ever since then i haven't found a goal i've been more motivated by than being being a headmaster mm. but i think your goal is is to have freedom i think it's a fantastic goal i have exactly this is. that is success oh, independence yeah. I, I absolutely think that yeah. i don't think any amount of money uh, doesn't matter i think but as long as you can afford your freedom yeah the only thing money buys you is time right yeah no i think that's very valuable and i i want to be able to choose my own choose what i do and um, not depend on anybody if financially or otherwise. And um, I, I sort of have achieved that. So uh, I want to keep that. How do you deal with risk? I mean, you, you've, you know, you've made 70 investments. It feels like a lot of risky maneuvers. How, how have you, well, a lot of people out there, again, uh, you know, they're scared to take risk. Risk is such a big thing. I don't want to lose it all, as you just put it, you know, not have money anymore to go on the holidays they want or have the freedoms they presently got, yeah. the luxuries they've got used to through lifestyle inflation. But what, what, you know, how do you calculate risk? How do you deal with oh, it? That's a good question. I think, I think some of the people who are quite similar to me and probably most quite experienced investors 
who know me well would say I'm quite conservative compared to them. And for example, my average investment in an angel business is probably a bit smaller than theirs would be. And I, I've always liked businesses with like revenues or with at least an idea and respect for how they're going to get revenues. Uh, whereas plenty of technology investors would be much more, shall we say, risk tolerant than that. Um, so I am, I'm on the more conservative end of things, I suppose. But I, and I also, partly, partly why I, my investment size is a bit lower is because I've always been quite careful to think of any money I make invest in a startup company as essentially almost like a charity contribution. It's money I might, I'm never going to see again. I kind of flushing it down the loo and I'm giving it because I want to help the business and because I can afford to lose all that money. And if it then turns out to come back to me in any form, I'm, it's a bonus. I'm delighted. But I think that's that's how I viewed that. So I've never been I've never been upset about one of those investments going wrong which sometimes they do um and i've managed the kind of core part of my sort of financial affairs f- fairly conservatively i have uh, i keep I, i've always been somebody who's been a natural saver i sort of track stuff I'm quite geeky like that and um it's given me probably the confidence to know what risks i can take and how to manage them i think it's another great insight from you that i think uh, a lot of people with risk it's it's really kind of calculating the downside and accepting it and then, you know, investing is like that. I, I have the same thing. I, if I put £100,000 into something, my idea is I've lost it. Yeah, <laughs> and if exactly. it comes back to me, as you say, then it's an upside. But that's yeah. the only way I can, I can live with the risk. Um, and, and I think so many people risk what they can't afford to lose. Yeah. And that's when it becomes very unpleasant. No, and think. if you find yourself, you know, your bank's asking you for personal guarantees and, you know, you're having to mortgage your house to sort of back your business. That's a level of risk I've always managed to avoid, actually. So I've, um, I've never had to give a personal guarantee. Mm. I've never borrowed money from my house to fund my um you know a risky project mm. um i've been lucky i suppose in that i've managed to avoid those um but i um yeah the, i mean I, there i've done plenty of things which are quite risky i mean I, 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 getting involved with good lord was a risk getting involved with a couple of the businesses i've been involved with before i put quite a lot of time as well as money in what was risky some of that paid off some of it didn't I think there's an uh, an element, and I know some of our listeners are you know, experienced entrepreneurs too. Um, there is there is an element of risk around reputation at a certain point in your yeah. career too. So when you get involved with this new business, you know you are tying up everything you've done before to that new business. How do you manage that sort of risk? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm I'm not I'm not one of these people who's I don't have a big ego actually. I don't think, and I don't. I'm actually quite conscious to like. I think egos are bad, and I, and I don't really want people. You know, egos are. Um, I've seen them do more damage than than create benefits. Um, and I think your reputation is your ego to some extent. And I'm I'm pretty relaxed about it. And I, you know, you won't catch me touch wood bragging or sort of you know spinning a story or kind of tipexing out things from my CV or whatever. And um, I I think I do my best. I ha- I try and act with integrity. I try and work with people I want to work with, and if I do all those things, I don't really care what my, what, that, what happens to my reputation. And because I, I, I'm I'm looking after the things that are important to me, and if other people want to judge me, that's their lookout, not mine. Well said. I, one of the things that caught my eye about you, and the reason I wanted you on the podcast, you know, I, I love the way you talk about your failures, and you highlight them. Um, any any stories you want to quickly talk about now and failure learnings and, and your thoughts on How failure? Have you got for this podcast, Simon? Yeah, well, I think we're, <laughs> we've got another five minutes. Fit them all in. <laughs> all your failures in five minutes. Um, look, I think there is value to be gained from failures, and I remember uh, I remember a chat with 
sort of launched a sort of I think before podcasts were a thing, you launched a sort of a, a weekly exercise called Failboat, which was designed to sort of get uh, everybody from the good ship Failboat to sort of talk about why their boat had sunk or whatever it was, and which is a useful exercise. Um, and I, I think so. Obviously, I've got investments I've made that have failed. I think I've um, I've got stuck into a couple of businesses and put quite a lot of time and effort into them that we've ended up having to close down. Um, I have. Um, never managed to reduce some of the things I'd sort of maybe wanted to do, like become a headmaster. And uh, does that make me a failure? Perhaps it does. Still time. Still. <laughs> I'm seeing MBA Harvard teacher uh, in your future. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be a, an Ibiza DJ. Uh, but um, <laughs> Again, never again, say never. There, yeah, never, never. <laughs> uh, and, um, I, um, and, I, and I've made some very bad decisions, um, such as selling... So I run some of my. I was one of the first four shareholders in Zoopla, and I sold quite a lot of those shares far too early, for example. So I um I have a whole bunch of regrets, but I do try and look forward, not backwards. Mm. And I um I, I what is that old saying? If you if you if you get it right fifty five percent of the time, you're going to do fine. And mm. uh, and I think I I'm not sure I'm at that number, but I've I, I've I've had enough stuff to enjoy and celebrate to to sort of uh, enable me to stay positive. Mm. That's a very important balancing act point you're mentioning there too. I mean, I had the same experience with selling my business fluid to PwC. It's now gone on to do tremendous numbers, uh, but you've got to be happy with what you got, right? And 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 leverage it. I think there'll be a lot of people that would dream of saying that the early investor in Zoopla. I mean, just having that insight and being there at those early days is pretty pretty impressive. I noticed you're also a chairman at Grays. I mean, how do, right. how, how do roles like that come about? How do well, so Grays was. Um was set up by one of the other founders of Love Film, actually. So it was one of the very talented chap called Graham Bosher who had uh, set up one of the businesses that we acquired. And he worked for me for a while. And um, he had, um, he'd had been focusing on the warehouse side of things when we were doing DVDs by the post back then. And uh, the Royal Mail went into this whole shake-up of how they did stuff. And they sort of changed the prices of what they did in a big way. And it was designed to sort of really encourage everybody to send stuff that could easily fit through letterboxes and charge a lot for stuff that couldn't. And he sort of works out that you could practically send water through the post really cheaply as long as it fitted through a letterbox. And he's like, that's interesting. What's, what, and what does water, water means food, really. So he's like, you can send f- it's right for sending food, like about as cheap as sending DVDs. And that was kind of how he came up with the idea. And then he asked me to help out. And um, and I think my I think I was only ever going to get involved kind of as a non-exec sort of uh, advisory part-time basis. But um, I was known by quite a lot of... I was known by him and some of his team. And I was also known by some of the investors. So being... Uh, they asked me to become chairman because it was a natural sort of, you know, you know both sides of the table basically and they all trust and respect or were happy to work with you. So we, um, you know, that, that happened. Uh, I was ended up cha- being chair there for about seven years actually. Was a, didn't think it was going to last that co- quite that long, but it did. Amazing. Well, I have a funny story myself. I um, I opened up Grays in Hong Kong and China okay. uh, in 2010. That's when I first found out about Grays. Um, okay. the one you were chairman for. Okay. Um, and it's interesting how, you know, one model, uh, same name, two different models. My, mine was a healthy cafe that okay. we'd compete with Starbucks and and, uh, and and scale up from there. And of course, Gray's was doing the snack food business, which has gone on to do really, really well. Yes, although, did you have the trademark for, for Gray's? Yes, yes, we did. Do you yeah. remember who had the trademark way back when in the UK? No, I don't, know Because we actually had to license it at first and it was the, it was the cafe at the London Zoo. 
Oh wow, that's, that's so funny. They were the uh, they were the original trademark. That's holders. that's so funny. That's so funny. Well, trademarks one of the things I always warn people in business to to you know you come up with a great name around the dining room table, uh, maybe you even get a URL you know we love Grays or something, and then only to find out a year into trading that someone else owns the trademark, right. and, and you can get into a lot of trouble around that. I, I owned a business called Foodie, right. um, and we um, we we basically did so well in Asia with this business. And then somebody came out of the woodwork uh, and said, oh, we own that trademark. And we had to, in theory, by law, give them all the earnings for the last three years in that business yeah, yeah. as part of the as part of the settlement. potential settlement right. to, to, for trademark infringement. So it's fascinating. Yeah, well, I had a, uh, I have a story a bit like that around when we were setting up my love film business. It was me and Alex Chesterman, chap who's become well-known these days for Zuplo and Kazoo and stuff. Um, but the name he wanted to go with originally was... Um, Easy flicks. Right. And uh, luckily, before we got too far with that, we realised that Stelios was going to have a view on this. Yeah, yeah. And Alex went and got advice. And he was like, oh, we'll win this. is ridiculous. You can't just trademark orange and easy or whatever mm. it was. And uh, anyway, he was really getting quite determined to like, you know, I like fight his name. Them. Yeah. Let's fight them. And I was just like, we've got so many other things we need to focus on. This, yeah. like, this Don't is bother. a distraction. Yeah. Let's, let's pick a Especially with name. brands like that, they get pinned in a corner. They've kind of got no choice but to, 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 to fight back yeah. and, and, you know, really... And he would, have, he would have definitely attacked us on it. And he, yeah. I saw a case the other day about him going after somebody for some some re- equally tenuous, uh, easy-related name. But uh, Stelios has track record and fair cop to him, I suppose. Mm. But it, I think we made the right call by deciding to pick a different battle. Yeah, totally. Um, good learning for listeners, though, about trademark there. Uh, I think uh, one of the things you've mentioned a few times, of course, the theme of our podcast is, is how luck plays a role in business. What's your view? You mentioned luck a few times. Luck's a, luck plays a role in all sorts of things, definitely including business. And um, I've been I've been lucky countless times, thankfully. Um, although I think I do, I do somewhat subscribe to the view that you can make your own luck as well. And a lot of the guys who you, know, you want to back and be part of are the guys who do make their own luck. And um, I think in my case, part of how I do that is I'm a fairly, in, a, a sort of a fairly natural networker. I've always, always sort of been quite an extrovert sort of character, the sort of character who says yes to random podcasts and stuff because you just never quite know what's going to happen. And um, the um, whereas, for example, my old partner Alex Chesterman, um, not that sort of person, like amazingly focused, disciplined, capable, talented businessman, but not doesn't he makes his own luck in other ways, but it's not through. Um, it's not through sort of random networking. Mm. Were your parents entrepreneurs? No, 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 absolutely not. My uh, father was an academic, uh, uh, a Latin professor, in fact. So I don't know what the opposite of entrepreneur is, but that was probably close to it. And my mother is uh, originally a teacher, and then she became a financial journalist. Um, and these days is an accountant. So, um, if, uh, you know, very, I, sp- I think probably some financial literacy kind of goes came with the genes, but. Uh, there wasn't anything entrepreneurial about it. Any family pressure? Any points? Like get a real job? What are you doing this this stuff for? No, I think I don't talk to my mother enough, and I'm not sure she probably worked out what I was up to before I started to do okay in it. Um, and um, no, and I think my initial route was to try and keep things open. I, as I didn't know, I didn't have answers as a kid to what do I want to do when I go, what job do I want to get? So I was always I was always interested in opening doors and not closing them. So I did I did some maths. Maths and physics and economics at A level, thinking probably going to open a lot of doors. Don't fancy these hard things like chemistry. Um, and then I went and did a engineering economics degree at university, which again I thought is probably going to open doors. Stops me having to be compete with the mathmos. And then I went into management consultancy, very much thinking it feels like I'm going to be carrying on opening doors. I don't don't want to defer the decision. And then I thought I might go and do an MBA, but but uh, an opportunity to set up my first business 
sort of came along and I ended up doing that, but still thinking probably won't work and I'll then do an MBA. Mm. Uh, and uh, luckily the first business did work. I think we've only just scratched the surface of your knowledge and so I'd love to have you back on. I'm, I'm going to end with this, this kind of question. If, if you were uh, you know, a young person out there l- looking to start a business today, are there any, any areas you think people should focus on? Any businesses that you think, hey, you know, I'd give that a go if I, if I was 20 and had time or you know, 50 and had time? I think the... If I, the, 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 the I think the thing I think about now if I was a young person uh, Young person, or the, the the message I'd give to like myself 20, 20 30 years ago is, um, there's no value in new ideas. Don't worry about a new idea. Uh, you've just got to copy something, and it's far easier to copy something than it is to invent something. You know, uh, imagine if your job is to make wheels and you've never heard of a wheel before, uh, versus you've seen a wheel, you just have to copy it. Like it's put a car on top uh, of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and the reality is, most businesses you can you can create something unique by copying something really easily because. Maybe you know, it's just like the first organic coffee place in your neighbourhood, for the sake of argument. It's, it's got its own point of view, then, doesn't it? But it's not. Uh, it's not. You're not inventing a wheel from scratch. Mm. I really like that insight. And again, I think for a lot of people, the word "copy" sounds negative. Exactly. Um, and I, because I've lived in China for a long time, people are like China's copying. Well, actually, they weren't copying. They were evolving and adapting to the market they were in with things. That was a misconception for people in the West thinking yeah. China was copying. That's why today you have things like Alibaba and and some other things they've done now being copied by Facebook. Exactly. You know, it's it's and it, Facebook's copying. Uh, is China social media no, copying uh, copying if somebody's if you can see something working somewhere else copy it right and, uh, evolve it put your own spin on it your own brand values on it right yes. or, or your own ethics or your own you know, whatever to give it something new and fresh but Facebook yeah. is a copy of MySpace yeah. I MySpace. don't mean go and create another organic coffee right next to the one you've just been, you want to copy right. I mean yeah. but but you can see the bits that work and don't sit there and say oh I want to do my totally new thing nobody's ever done it before if nobody's ever done it before it doesn't mean they haven't actually. It just right. means it hasn't worked. Right. So uh, why don't you copy the stuff which you can see working totally. instead? Totally. And, and it's very interesting because I think every business I've personally ever started, I mean, even this podcast show, someone said, Simon, you know many people doing podcasts? You've missed the boat. I'm like, so? No, and I, bet <laughs> I, I enjoy it. And I, I think I, I'm adding value to the world by doing it. So, and so, I bet so, you're looking at other successful podcasts and getting ideas from them. And yeah. Going, oh, hang on. That's a good idea. I can do yeah. a bit of that myself. And, you know, that's... Uh, if yeah. you're not doing that, you should start doing that. But the other thing I know you've done, so from your CV, which is just mind blowing, you know, I think the other angle to it is it's it's not just looking at your competitors. I'm not personally, I'm not just looking at podcasts, for example, and, and comparing. I'm looking at what Google have done and yep. comparing. Like, how can we turn our knowledge into a search for entrepreneurs, for example, yep. right? So, I think evolving it beyond the podcast and not just necessarily staying in in that category, right? So, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting insight. That's right. Yeah. Well, look, uh, thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me and the listeners today. Um, thank, thank you for your insights and thank you for investing in so many uh, entrepreneurs and supporting them and look forward to having you back on the show another time. Yeah, well, thank you for trying to create a million businesses, Simon. It's a good mission. Yeah, yeah. Well, it won't be me. It'll be the people listening, hopefully. We'll help them do it. But uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to our first episode in season two of the Good Luck Club podcast. I hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to connect to William, feel free to click his link below and I'm sure he's ready to hear your pitch if you're looking for investors. In addition, if you like what you heard today, do me a favor, hit the share button so the rest of the world can hear these insights. Finally, if you have any questions about entrepreneurship or are feeling alone in entrepreneurship, feel free to comment below or DM us, contact us direct and let us know how we can help you through these difficult times. 
Every week, we do one-on-one sessions with entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs. You can get 15 minutes with anyone if you're polite and patient and have a good question. So let us know if we can help you in any way and we'll be here. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Good Luck Podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to. We feel lucky you listen to ours. Thank you.